Just for a change is the Smiths with a track titled Unlovable from the, from the album The World Won't Listen. This is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should, always playing the finest in indie pop. And this week's special guest is going to be a member from the Leeds based band Girls Art Our Best. Yes, I managed to track down a member after only, I don't know, two years. Jeremy Pritchard, sometimes known as James Jez Annan, to give him his full title. So I've got that interview that I'll bring out, or um, cut up into about three or four easy to digest sort of segments throughout the show alongside the usual award-worthy playlist so i'm going to start with your favorite of mine yes you've guessed it it's going to be getting nowhere fast Thank you. 
it does end very abruptly. I was waiting, I was prepared. Anyway, that is Girls at Our Best and the track titled Getting Nowhere Fast. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this week's special guest is going to be Jez from the band because I managed to track down a member after only two plus years. So I was very excited, basically hyperventilating. And um, yes, I've got lots of admin, but I think I'll do admin a bit later because frankly, I have to sort of, you know, pretend that um, I've got a lot to <laughs> a lot to do on this show. So we're going to play another track and then the first part of the interview with Jez, sometimes known as Jeremy. I know we got we got deep down and uh, personal at times. Well, just friendly. It was very enjoyable. And I have to say, like I uh, mentioned earlier, it's taken a long time to find a member of Girls Are Our Best. So I'm hugely excited about this one. So anyway, we're going to play one more track, then Jeremy. I know the excitement is building. This is going to be titled Politics. Remember, we were very angsty back in those um, early years, during the late 70s and especially the 80s. Take it away. There you go. More chart band sounds from Girls at Our Best. And that was the track titled Politics. I know that's all we thought about back in the late 70s and especially during the 80s, that Barley Cup TVP and, um, I don't know, the Socialist Workers Party. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, we love your messages. You can via Facebook or Twitter. Seems a bit old hat now, doesn't it, Twitter? But anyway, you can see at C86 Show or on Instagram which is very exciting. I'm feeling very sort of surfing the uh, cultural and social um, media 
yes, media zeitgeist there. And um, all the shows that I've done are archived and you can find them on Spotify, iTunes and Mixcloud and Podbean. Just go to C86 Show. Anyway, this is going to be the first part of my interview with Jez, sometimes known as Jeremy. Um, and the bit that we were... <laughs> yes, I just edited the first bit out where we were just... Uh, well, I was just a bit confused about what his real name is. But um, he explained that and I don't think you need to know. But this is Jez Allen sometimes anyway you don't need to worry um just leave that with me this is going to be the (laughs) the second part of the interview um where we were talking about the the, yes where does girls at our best fit in uh in the music in in the musical kind of i don't know episodes of punk post-punk and in indie and this was jez's answer jez take it away we were just before that period because we sort of we kind of formed initially around about kind of 1978 79 and then I think the album came out in about 1981 or maybe 82, and then it finished. So we're just kind of on the cusp just before your period begins. It is, but such an important band. So is it possible to give us a background of how you all got together and and formed the group? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, the lead scene was fairly small um, at the time, so all the people that had got to know each other kind of through the punk scene, you know, there was quite a good network of people. Um, And I'd been in a punk band, a sort of um, Clash-inspired local band called SOS. Um, And that kind of, you know, it ran its course. It did, you know, we we had a few good songs and things, but there was, by the time of about 1978, there were just too many punk bands and they were all sounding exactly the same. And we wanted to do something a bit different. So we kind of split up and... The um, all the bands had got really aggressive names, you know, like the the Razor Blades and all that kind of stuff. So we formed this band called the Butterflies, so that when our name was on the list of gigs in the local venues, we'd kind of really stand out as being different. Um, and then also we made sure that we kind of sounded pretty horrible. Um, so there was another, you know, people would think that we might sound really pretty and then they'd go to the gig and we wouldn't sound pretty at all. Um, and this was in the kind of 78, 79 period. And I started, I went to art school for one year when I left, um, when I left school, I went to art college because that was still in the days where, you know, if you wanted to be in a band, art college was a good place to go and meet people, you know, as it had been for, you know, the, the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and all that kind of stuff onwards. Um, and I went to the art college and I did, in fact, meet a couple of people. But with a sort of post-punk twist, I decided to get, rather than look for musicians, I decided to deliberately get people that had never been in a band before and didn't have any aspirations to be in a band, which was kind of interesting. But it was hard work um, because I had to kind of teach them how to play everything. Um, but it did it sort of made it, it made us sound a bit different. Um, and we played and then the drummer from the punk band kind of got back with us because we couldn't find a drummer and then the bass player got back with us and we changed the name um, and it became Girls at Our Best but it kind of grew out of this sort of post-punk um, semi sort of slightly, it was a bit experimental except it wasn't that experimental because it was still just bass, drums and guitar but we were kind of trying to be a bit discordant and atonal in that kind of post-punk way. Yes, which is always very it's good. Evolving skills at our best. Yes, and and you. So it sounds like because I did an interview with a member of Big Flame, and it sounded because they were a three piece, and there was kind of one person who could play their instrument, and the other two would just happen to be there. And, yeah, it was and, and, and that was good enough. So were you the one musician in the band? Uh, yes, I mean I, I used the term loosely. I wasn't the greatest musician, but I had you know played the guitar since I was maybe fourteen or fifteen, you know, and I could play all the David Bowie songs and stuff like that, um, and you know the, the punk songs. I sort of grew up listening to David Bowie and Doctor Feelgood, um, that kind of stuff. Yes. Well, sort of seventies rock, seventies rock and retro rock. So when the punk thing came along, it was exactly what I was into. Um, but then, like I said, there were just too many bands and they were all identical. So the whole thing with that post-punk was like all the different bands were kind of exploding outwards, trying to sound different from everybody else, which yes. meant some really good, interesting experimentation. You know, all sorts of, I can't, you know, all those Cabaret Voltaire and, um, I don't know, Scritti Politti and 
Um, well, I, I suppose you had bands like, I don't know, if you could put them in the same category, you've got people like Magazine and then Public Image Limited as well with yeah, their Metal Box American, album. American bands like Pear Ubu and Talking Heads and, you know, there were just loads of them and they were all kind of going off in slightly different directions, um, you know, kind of rejecting the rock thing that had dominated punk and they were sort of picking up on stuff like funk and soul and reggae and dub. And yes electronic music you know and it, it was quite an interesting time and um, i must say i don't listen to a lot of music from that era now but i'm very glad that i was there and kind of a little bit part of it you know well yeah absolutely and and you know leeds kind of exploded quite soon after you yeah, um, yeah. appeared because you had the mekons and then a few years later people like chumpawamba and i guess it was sisters of mercy also from leeds in the goth yes, world sis- all that goth thing sort of was just starting because basically after the Girls at Our Best split up, which was 81 or 82 or something, I, I went down to London because I felt that I'd kind of exhausted the Leeds scene, really, because it was, you know, it wasn't as big as it is now, the Leeds. You know, it was more provincial. So I kind of felt that I knew everyone and I knew a few people in London. So I thought I'd go down there and kind of find some new people to play with and, you know, do different things. And just about the time I was leaving was around the time that Sisters of Mercy was starting off. Um, and I think the mission, although the mission might have been after I'd gone down to London. So in the rest of the 80s, the period of your show from 83 to 87, I wasn't actually in Leeds then. I was in London. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of missed out a bit on the, you know, I was aware that things were happening in Leeds. But my, my Leeds period is kind of 77 to 81 or something like those three or four years. Yes, because it, it was also, we forget how grim it was. You know, everybody I've interviewed for these this show has often yeah. said, you wouldn't believe how little money there was about, you know. So bands would often do tours. Well, I say tour, they'd get a few dates. And sometimes if if they turned up at the other side of the country or just a long way away and the gig for some reason had been pulled and, you know, don't forget in those days, you, you know, communication was really difficult. You had to go to a phone box with two people. Yeah, yeah. So a couple yeah. of bands, and I know Motorhead was one, and the other one was the Wolf Hands, where the gig was clo- uh, finished. What well, didn't happen, so they didn't get any money. And then they couldn't get home because they had no petrol. So they had to sort of either busk in the, in, yeah, yeah. with the Wolf Hands or w- with Motorhead. They had to sort of kind of yeah. de- deliberately sort of break the van, get the AA to come out to pick them up and take them yeah. back to London. So so those that period was also quite, you know, it was it was quite it poverty was, driven as well. It was just, it was all very rough and ready and it was very spontaneous. And when I look back on it now, it was like just loads of young, young people kind of being creative and not really caring, you know, just having fun and trying to do something different. As you said, with not much money and not very much resources, um, you know, and that includes musical skills as a resource. You know, those were often pretty um, absent as well. But it was just kind of being imaginative and having some fun and doing the best that you could do with it. Yes. And then that obviously came a lot of very interesting, you know, interesting music. OK, that's enough quality chat for one moment. We're going to give it a break there, but there's going to be more. But I think we need some more music to keep the party rolling. This is going to be Girls at Our Best. Actually, it's always going to be girls at the best. I must stop saying that. And this is titled Warm Gun.
And that's another um, track by Girls at Obvious. And that was titled Warm Girls. I do believe I might have said Warm Gun, but I'm not going to go back and re-edit it. Just get over it, OK? Or just contact me and say, ha-ha, you made a mistake. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, just keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Um, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. Also, check it out on Instagram and the fantastic archive which I've created on, um, yes, Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, and also Podbean, C86 Show. It's all there. Anyway, this week's special guest is Jez from the Leeds Bass Band. And this is the second part of the interview where I was talking about, um, yes, the kind of narrative of the band and how long it took for them to get a sound together, which was going to give them that sort of moment of stardom. Well, a play on John Peel. And this was Jez's answer. Jez, how long did it take? Sort of did, but... And that was the that was the period of what would have been the end of SOS and the and the butterflies and stuff. But we weren't kind of doing it in a way of let's spend two years getting our sound together. It was quite it was a bit directionless because sort of, you know, for a couple of months we'd be trying this thing, then we'd I don't know, we'd get a new drummer and we'd slightly go in this direction. So it was a bit kind of slightly random and hit and miss. But when you look back on it now, yes, it was two years of getting the sound together and then what you know, the, the girls are our best stuff that we did was a result of all of those different things that we did for that couple of years. Yes, because I remember sort of listening to, I think it was Marty from the, um, the 60s band, <laughs> Jefferson Airplane, who when, the, when he was getting a group together, he really wanted a woman singer for various reasons. Mm. One, one was that he just didn't want to be in a band with lots of blokes because he knew that, you know, the energy and the vibe and all that stuff would just kind of create a certain sound. So he, he you know, Grace Slick was the singer. Did you also have a, a sort of feeling that you really wanted to break up the blokes in the band sort of um, mm. cliché? No, not particularly. It, it, it happened and a lot of people say, oh, you must have been like kind of, you know, feminists because of the name of the band and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't really that at all. The, the Judy, the singer, or Joe, which is a real name, she was like my girlfriend. And, you know, it's, it was like, well, do you want to be in the band then? And she she was quite a character, you know, she'd got quite a lot of attitude. So it just made sense to have her in the band. Um, but it wasn't like a conscious thing, particularly of let's have a girl in the band. It was just, she, she was a bit different and interesting, you know, and it was different from the previous bands I'd been in. So it was like, let's just give it a go then. And the name of the band was fairly accidental. Um, that came about because we'd got a song called Warm Girls and part of the lyrics at the end of the song says girls are our best. And... <clears throat> The girl, the, what was the butterflies had split up basically because we kind of reached the end. We were doing the gigs and we said, we'll just do one final thing, which was let's just go in the studio and record a couple of songs. So we did that. And then the people in the band said, right, we've had enough now. So me and Joe were left with this tape 
and we thought, well, the two songs we've got are pretty good, which was Getting Nowhere Fast and Warm Girls. And we thought, well, let's see if we can get someone to release it, even though we don't have a band. So we went down to London to go around all the, you know, Rough Trade and Beggar's Banquet and I can't remember, the sort of little independent labels hawking this demo tape around. And, would be, you know, they would say, obviously, what's the band called? And there was, it was that time when there were loads of bands with ridiculous names like Pink Military Standalone and um, Theoretical Girls, that American band, and Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark and all those kind of, you know, slightly weird phrases. It was about that same sort of time. And the, the girls at our best, we just thought, oh, well, that's kind of like, sounds like it could be quite a good kind of name, a banner to do it under. But it wasn't anything to do with feminism or anything. It was just because it sounded interesting. Um, and then it kind of stuck. So then Rough Trade said, oh, yeah, we like these songs. We'll we'll release them for you. And we were like, fantastic. That, you know, that was great. But on the other hand, we didn't have a band anymore. And it was just the two of us. Yes. God, that's so strange because, you know, because from because a lot of those I remember in the 80s, it was a very angsty uh, decade, wasn't it? And we were all getting very um, political and there was the Socialist Socialist Workers Party and there was Red Wedge. And so there was there was often quite a strong political angle of anything on that sort of that side of the fence. So I obviously sort of thought, yes, they must have they must have sat around reading sort of really deep and meaningful philosophical political books and stuff like that and being, you know very sort of into Nietzsche and stuff, probably. What, you mean us? Yes, you. No, not remotely. We were, we, were totally aware, we were totally aware of all that stuff, and we were quite anti it because right. we found those most of the people that were like that, and there were some Leeds bands that were very much like that, were so kind of took themselves so seriously and were so pretentious that we didn't really want a part of it. So we were kind of against it, and rather than having some political manifesto, what we did with our music and the lyrics and stuff, that was enough of a manifesto. It was like, well, this is how we are. I suppose things like having a girl singer, we didn't want to make a point out of the fact that we've got a girl singer. It's enough that we've got a girl singer. That shows, that's, that makes the statement itself. Do you see what I mean? Yes. We weren't at all, we weren't at all reading Nietzsche or any of those things. <laughs> not remotely. <not> <laughs> Oh, you just burst the bubble. And then you had a song called Politics. I mean, you know. It was a riposte to a a very political band that had a song called Entertainment. And we sort of joked and said they're singing all about entertainment where all they're interested in is politics. So we said, well, let's write one called Politics because what we're interested in is entertainment. So it was a kind of um, reply to that one and uh, uh, don't stop taking yourself so seriously oh my god i just completely you know i thought you were just you know said that obviously yes the words were about politics (laughs) but you know we were kind of playing with it rather than preaching to the world Yes. You know. Well, because whenever you hear a Chumbawamba interview, and I have interviewed members, you know, you always have to talk about the A word, which is anarchy in great detail. And you think, I'm not that bothered anymore. But um, no, well, no, it's the same. And even at the time, it's like, I mean, I was obviously, I, I, I liked punk. And what I really liked about that, the pistols and the Ramones, and that was the humour in it and the fun. And that was one of the one of the not so good things about the post punk thing was that the fun really went out of it. It was very po faced and serious. And that was, you know, like I said, it was musically interesting. There was lots of good stuff happening, but it was very, after the whole punk thing, it was a bit po-faced and miserable. Yeah, well, the 80s, I mean, you know, though we... Well, I mean, that post-punk thing. Yes. Then you had all, you know, Kim Wilde and Adam the Ants and Boy George and stuff was a kind of a a reply to that, wasn't it? Because that was all about, you know, let's have fun and look good and party and dress up and, you know, it was... I think that was the whole history of all this music. Every time it goes in some direction, whether it's musically or visually or philosophically, whatever direction it goes in, after a short while, someone else will do the opposite of that as an alternative. So they're doing something the opposite, and then someone will react against that and do the opposite. Yeah. So the sort of history of it is people all rebelling against each other in a very small... If you zoom out, it's quite a small little world. 
It's tiny, but that was quite interesting because then that period that you were talking and those bands that sort of went into, I suppose, New Romantic because of that whole nightclub scene in London. Yeah. And then you had the face and then you had all those pictures with Sade looking beautiful and all the Boy George and the Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran. I mean, mm. that made me even more sort of insecure and um, sensitive about life and sort of even more sort of embracing the world of the Smiths and, and any band who was angsty and kind of, yeah. um, yes, felt like an outsider because... Mm-hmm it was easy to feel like an outsider because obviously I was never going to go to those clubs and never feel part of it and and the idea of dressing up in you know fancy dress or, or trying to look like a dandy would completely freak me out and send me into sort of um you know hyperventilating well, I totally understand that and I didn't dress up myself but I totally got it but that's because I'd been a massive David Bowie fan when I was younger so I kind of got that whole thing about dressing up and being a peacock but I didn't do it myself. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I didn't dress up like a new romantic or anything. But I kind of understood it. Um, you know, it made sense. Yes. But then, I went I went down to London. I got involved with the um, what the, the band that had been the Meteors, which was the Psychobilly thing, which was the other thing that I've always liked, which was just kind of rock and roll. You know, like I said, I used to like Doctor Feelgood and the Stones, and playing with the two guys that had been in the Meteors in the band called the Tall Boys, and we were playing kind of garage rock with rockabilly, you know, and it was kind of dirty, grimy, grungy rock and roll, which I was doing that at the same time that all the new romantic stuff was still going on. Um, And then the goth thing happened in London. There was the goth thing with the Batcave, um, and I dyed my hair black because I used to get the Batcave right in the early days, and I thought they looked quite cool. Um, It was all sort of experimenting. It was like every you know, a couple of months trying a different look or trying a different sound or whatever. That's, mm-hmm. you know, when I look back on it now, I guess there was some sort of thread to it all, but a lot of it wasn't really thought out. It was, you know, pretty spontaneous and random. Yes, the days of being random. That's youth for you. Anyway, that's the second part of my interview with Jez from um, Girls Arabes. There's still more of that you can be sure but um, I think we're going to play a bit more music by the band this is titled Pleasure
bouncy tunes from Girls at Abyss, and that was a track titled Pleasure. Hello, this is David Esau. This is the C86 Show, and this is going to be the third part of my interview with the guitarist Jez, where I was talking about um, them doing uh, John Peel sessions, as obviously most people like to do that, especially if you're from an indie background. But they also did one with Richard Skinner, which... um, Slightly threw a curveball in my direction, but I managed to cope. Anyway, this was Jez's reply. Was he happy about getting those two sessions? Jez, tell us, did it make you smile? Fantastic, and it was really exciting going down to London in our transit van that we rented or whatever, and, you know, doing live versions of the song on the of the songs on the radio, and like I said, John Peel liked it, and we did a couple of tours, and, you know, that, you know it was really good fun, I suppose, because we'd spent quite two or three years in Leeds playing to very tiny little venues to, you know, very often fairly disinterested people or playing to about 10 people. So it was quite nice when the album, you know, when we got a bit, we got noticed a bit. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I hadn't appreciated this kind of the importance of John Peel as this kind of gatekeeper figure. And then with him, you know, playing it, it meant that because I often wonder how because nowadays I think bands have a, a problem playing outside their community. Whereas in those days, you know, you got played on John Peel and that meant that, you know, a club in Norwich or Leeds or Glasgow, you know, I'm going around the country. now, yeah, one no, time. But Bristol, you know, someone would phone you up and say, oh, I've got an indie night on a Monday. Do you want to come? And people yeah. go, of course, yes, we'll get in the van and we'll just drive there doesn't matter um and do it because because you know so you weren't having to play in front of your friends and family and and anybody else that you could emotionally blackmail to come and see you you could actually play in front of strangers which gives a band a bit more i suppose experience because watching those documentaries on people like the rolling stones or or the beatles or even bowie you know they spent years gigging away without getting yeah, yeah. anywhere and yeah. then one day it started to happen and i realized the importance of just going out and playing live is is critical and in those days, because again, it wasn't as easy to bring out a record like you know nowadays. You can, you could, I could release an album tomorrow and have it on, you know, available on the internet by tomorrow. And in those days, even though the, you'd got the DIY singles thing where you could bring singles out, it wasn't instant. You know, it still took a while to get records out. So the only way you could do stuff was to play live. That's the only way that you could sort of disseminate what you know what you're doing musically i was going to say about the gatekeepers the other gatekeeper along with john peel were the music papers which was sounds and nme and melody maker i suppose sounds and nme were like the main two and again if you if you were approved of by the music papers and or john peel then yes you things would happen and we were very lucky that as well as john peel liking us there was a journalist called adrian thrills who gave a single of the week in sounds um, and again, at that time, you know, everybody who was into music read those music papers. So if you got a good review on in sounds, that was as good as getting a good play on John Peel. Yes, so, yeah, I know, because um, the circulation figures were quite staggering. When I look at yeah, them now, yeah. I, keep, I keep thinking they must have put an extra zero in. It's like 100,000 a week. Because, again, there was no internet or anything. So the only way you could find out about all these bands you know, whereas now you Google them and go and watch the video on YouTube, you have to buy the music papers to find out what's the latest thing or to see pictures of what even, you know, what did they look like or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yes, you'd, you'd have to pay some influencer on Instagram to like you or, or put, yeah, yeah. put yeah. a picture up, you know, a bit like that uh, fire festival that they've been having a documentary yes. on, you know, the importance of that world, which has changed so much. So look, yeah. what then, you know, as, as, as you're sort of, you know, because like I said, most bands have, the five-year you had three-year narrative so during that time did you start playing you know further afield and to slightly larger crowds well we started yeah we, we didn't play we played around Yorkshire so we, we, we I can't remember like Sheffield or Nottingham or those sort of places because most places had venues and they had rock nights and most of them had sort of I don't know you know a Tuesday night when they would have new bands on or they'd have punk bands or something like that so with phoning around and hustling a bit you could find gigs but we couldn't travel too far because you're about to be able to get there and back in the same night in the transit van you know because we couldn't afford to stay over anywhere stay overnight Um, and we were friends I was friends with Kevin from the Mekons and they had a gig supporting Gang of Four uh, um, somewhere in London, which will come back to me in a minute. The Greyhound, in, not the Greyhound, the, the place in West Kensington, the Nashville, I think it was, which was an old sort of pub rock venue. 
and they'd got a gig supporting gang of four and they took us along to sort of open for them and it was like the first time we'd ever played in london it was quite a bit an interesting gig because the load of skinheads turned up to have a go at the gang of four because the gang of four had just you know i think it was known that they were very left wing and a load of sort of nazi skinheads turned up so it was quite a wild night um we were on first i remember that you know we were like we couldn't believe that we were actually playing a gig as far away as london because like i said the furthest we'd probably ever played was sheffield or nottingham or something um so that was very good of kevin to give us that spot and then as you know when I think we, well, I don't think we were girls at our best then. I think we were still the butterflies. But then with we sort of decided to not do any gigs when we were girls at our best, partly because Joe, the singer, she said, I don't want to do any of these small places. I'd rather not play anywhere and then wait and see if we can get a bit of a following and then play some bigger venues, which we did and it kind of worked. Um, so we didn't do loads of gigs as girls at our best, but the ones we did were a bit better attended. Um, and then until we got to quote one of our songs a little bit too big for our boots and we did um we got this manager when we signed my happy birthday records and she arranged this tour in america or sort of west uh, east coast america about eight gigs or nine gigs or something which we did but it was a real mistake because nobody had heard of us no one was interested in us you know it was great for us to go to new york and play the mud club or whatever it was um, but that was really the end of the band because I think the whole thing had sort of lost direction because the record company were trying to promote us as a pop band and we weren't sort of fully comfortable with that. We were a bit sort of losing direction and we'd done that thing, you know, the second album syndrome where we were trying to write some follow-up songs and we sort of lost direction. And then the other members in the band said they'd had enough, you know, they wanted to do something different. So it all sort of fizzled out. Yes, well, that's a bit drastic because it's interesting because there's two things that mostly kill a band. It's the second album, and if anybody ever tours America, they come back kind of um, traumatised, a bit like, I suppose, going to Vietnam, but, you know, obviously not, not quite as bad as going to Vietnam. But normally that is like, and then we split up. So so you did you did both of those things. You scored both kind of those. Of like I mean, the American tour, it was, it was too, in to New York Dolls Quo, it's too much too soon. What we should have done is done some more smaller gigs, um, you know, built up a bit more of a following, and um, but you know, it's it happened, and we had, like I said, we had good fun, and then it fizzled out, and then my I thought, well, that's it now. I'm off to London now. Go do something else. You know, I didn't I didn't want to give up music, but I thought, right, well, I'll go and see what else I can, who else I can find to play guitar with, and you know, have some fun and do some gigs. Yes, and so did you have a moment with the band to say, you know, this to quote, you know, to quote Jim Morrison, this is the end, or did it? Or did I've, you just... I've often wondered about that, and it was, it was, it ended with a whimper rather than a bang. There was no big row or argument or anything. I think either Terry, the bass player, or Titch, the drummer, just sort of said, "Oh, you know, I think I've had enough now." And then the other, the other one said, "I think I've had enough now," and we were just like, "Yeah, okay, then," because you know, it wasn't, it was all. Everyone had, it was like pulling apart, pulling in different directions, you know, different things we wanted to do musically. So it was kind of, yeah, all right, well, let's just leave it then. The joys, the ups and downs of being in a band. Anyway, that is the third part of my interview with Jez from um, Girls Are Our Best, all the way from Leeds. Anyway, I think we'll have another track. This is going to be a track from a John Peel session that was recorded on the, yes, recorded on the 17th of February. 1981 and the producer was Dale Griffith and the engineer was Mike Robinson and I hope you're paying attention. This is titled China Blue. Come to China for the day.
There you go. That's a track titled China Blue. That came from a John Peel session. And uh, yes, obviously, Girls of Abyss sounding fantastic there. Recorded in 1981. I know you can do the maths. How many years ago was that? Anyway, this is going to be the uh, probably the final part of the interview with Jez, where I was talking about the Fleetwood Mac element of the band, because obviously there was a couple, and I just wondered how that dynamic worked, because... Um, with Galaxy 500, it wasn't a good dy- dynamic. Anyway, Jez, how did it go? It didn't help looking back on it. I think it was not good. It wasn't good for Terry and for the Terry and Titch because it must be quite hard. I've not been in a band myself where that's the case, but it must be quite hard if you're not part of the couple. And then on the other hand, it's also not good for me and Joe because we were with each other 24 hours a day. All the, you know, so it also looking back on it, I don't think I would do it again. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be on with a partner again, I think. Yes. And so the other thing that often trips people up is the kind of admin, you know, the publishing and, and record label stuff. So how did that go with the band? The, most of the admin, I, th- I suppose I did quite a lot of it, but I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I wasn't, I wasn't particularly interested in it. I wasn't very business minded. So, you know, we were signing contracts that turned out to be pretty rubbish contracts because we didn't know what we were signing. And in those days, it was very difficult to get any information anyway, because, you know, there weren't there weren't the resources that are around now. You just had to find a solicitor and hope that they understood, you know, hope that they understood the contracts. Um, And in terms of the phoning, I remember I used to do a lot of phoning up the gigs and kind of I was a bit, you know, the sort of the organiser of it all. Um, which I didn't mind doing. I suppose it, you know, somebody had to do it, and I, you know, I was quite, um, you know, motivated because I wanted things to happen for the band. So I would get on the phone and phone people up and try and make things happen. You know, make things happen. Yes. And did you? Um, I mean, because one thing I sort of struggled was finding, you know, your work. You know, to to find the album and stuff. And eventually, was it Vinyl Japan brought it out? Yeah, Vinyl Japan, they re-released it first, and then I think it's been re-released three times, certainly twice, if not three times. Um, oh, Cherry Red Records, they, they re-released it as well. And each time it's been re-released, released, it's been remastered. Um, every time it's slightly, the speed's slightly different and the EQ's slightly different, um, but also the bonus tracks on it are different. So I think to get everything, you'd have to get two different CDs because I think one's got some of the Peel sessions and the other one's got some B-sides or something like that. I think one's, uh, got, one's got the Richard Skinner session as well, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've kind of forgot. But I think if you were trying to get everything, it wouldn't be that hard. You, there's just two CDs that you need to get in between the two yes. CDs. It, that, there isn't anything else. Oh, there's a few live tracks there. Someone, it was... Um, who sent me, it was some fan, like a fan from the old days, who, this is a few years ago, and they'd got a, like a, an old cassette of some live gigs that they'd done, which they sent to me, and I kind of tried the best. That They just recorded from, actually they recorded from the mixing desk, I think. So you've got that strange thing where the things that are the loudest, like the drums, are quietest because they're not going through the desk, and the things that are the quietest, like the vocals, are the loudest because they are going through the desk. Does that make sense? So volume-wise, it's all a bit back to front. The guitars and drums are quiet. But anyway, there was a few of the tracks and I kind of got someone to help me EQ them a bit so they sounded reasonable. And they're somewhere on YouTube. You can find them so you can hear what we sounded like live. There's about six six or seven tracks. Yes, excellent. And were you chuffed that um, the wedding present sort of decided to cover your very famous single? I found out it was quite funny because later on, um, in the end of the 80s, um, I'd had enough of doing music and I wanted to do something different. And I went to college to study as a mature student because apart from that year at art college, I'd never done any studying. And I kind of thought I wanted to do something different. Um, And I'd got a part-time job in a bar and someone in the bar was a fan of the wedding present. And they said, they showed me this cd or cassette i think it was it was a cassette and i saw this song on it and i said oh that's strange you know i used to be in a band and we did a song called that and i listened to it and it was indeed the same song um so i then contacted the record company because i thought it was quite a big selling album 
And I thought, well, it's great they've done a copy, but also I should be due, you know, the band should be due some money for it. Um, and I chased our publishers who published Girls Are Best and they didn't even know it had been released or anything. And I said, it's like a number one album or a number two album or something. And we chased it and chased it. And eventually I think we got like 50 quid or something from it. Um, but yes, it was very nice that the present did a cover. Indeed, we like a happy ending, and I think we should leave it there. That is the last part of my interview with Jez from Girls at Our Best. A big thank you for giving me the time. Um, and uh, yes, eventually I found a member of the band, which was obviously made my year. So there you go. If you want to contact me, I'll just give you our details again. You can via um, Twitter or Facebook. Just go to at C86show or follow me on Instagram, C86show. And like I said, the archive is there on um, Podbean. There's also Spotify, iTunes and Mixcloud. Just go to C86show and it's all there. But anyway, um, thank you ever so much for listening. And next week, don't forget, there will still be another special guest. But I think I'll leave you with another track by the band. This one is titled It's Fashion. Have a great week. Show, please